Hi there. Welcome to Nature Spirit, exploring the spirituality of a living world. I'm your host, Priscilla Stuckey. A duty of care. I ran across the phrase this week in a book I was reading, To Speak for the Trees, by the botanist Diana Beresford Kroger. In the book, Diana talks about growing up in Britain and Ireland, how she was orphaned at the age of 12, and then how her mother's people, who were Irish farmers in County Cork, adopted her in the traditional way, all of them together, taking her under their wing, teaching her one by one what they knew of the old Celtic ways. One elderly auntie might teach her how to treat an illness with plant medicine, Another, how to cover eggs with a layer of butter so they would not spoil, even without refrigeration. Diana writes, Everything in the natural world possessed innate value. This belief that one should love others and nature as much as they loved themselves was at the very heart of Celtic philosophy. It was drilled into me with every lesson. She was to love trees as people something she said was not hard for her as she went on to become a tree scientist. But, she says, it's harder to instill in people the sense of responsibility for nature. We humans are susceptible to greed, taking more from nature than we need, and so a central part of each of her lessons was to always leave enough for the seventh generation. We have a duty of care, she writes. Everything in the world is owed the same duty of care that we grant to ourselves and our loved ones. As it happens, I read three other indigenous writers this week, and every one of them offered a parallel message, each with its own flavor, its own history. I want to highlight all their words as a way of honoring this idea that is so crucial to living peaceably on earth, the idea of care, an ethic of care, caring for the land, caring for one another, and how some societies build it into the very foundations of their culture so that caring isn't just something people do in the privacy of their own homes within their own families. It's the guiding principle of public life. It has social value. Caring for land and caring for others shapes the culture's very laws and economics— so today, we're honoring as well the indigenous societies that preserve and practice this public duty of care to this very day. First up, a voice from Australia. Dr. Mary Graham is an Aboriginal woman from the Kombumeri clan of the Gold Coast of Queensland. She's also a Western-trained philosopher and professor. Mary Graham writes that for Aboriginal people, the land is not property or real estate. It is the great mother of all humanity. The land and how we treat it, she writes, is what determines our humanness. The relation between people and land becomes the template for society and social relations. Aboriginal people see that if a person's or a society's relationships with others are out of balance, it is because their relationship with earth suffered first. In relating to land, the first ingredient is an obligation of care. Mary Graham writes, As the land created us, so we are always going to be obligated to it. 
all the flora and fauna, every living thing, all the landforms and features of the land, they are all our ancestors, because they all came before us. Literally, the grass we walk on, the soil we walk on, the plants and animals we eat, these all made us human and gave us meaning and identity. And because we are always obliged to the land, she goes on, we are in turn obliged to look after it. Mary Graham calls this law of care a custodial ethic. She writes, Ethics only come from having empathy and from looking after something outside ourselves. She says, The land looks after us, we look after it, it looks after us, we look after it. Her words reminded me of the native Hawaiian culture of the land where I now live. I've talked about this before in the podcast, the guiding idea of aloha aina, or giving love, aloha, to the land, aina. For Hawaiians, the aina is our mother or grandmother. Aina literally means that which feeds. We love the land, aloha aina, because the land loves us and provides for us. Aina, aloha. If you want to listen to that episode, it's called Everything is Alive and We Are All Relatives, from September of last year. So this week, I dug deeper into Aloha Aina in a master's thesis by Claire Hiwahiwa Steele at the University of Hawaii. Claire studied traditional Hawaiian society, and especially the class of people known as the konohiki, or land managers. Hawaiian society, like that of the ancient Celts, was a class society, with many divisions of people from royalty on down to tenant farmers who worked the land. The Konohiki were the class below the chiefs, but above the tenants. They supervised all the farming in a given district. Their whole job was summed up in one term, malama aina, to care for, serve, and keep the land. Claire writes, malama aina was the foundation of Hawaiian society. So love and care shaped the hearts and minds of the land managers, not just their jobs. For example, one land manager wrote in his personal will about my land and my responsibility and my pieces of land. And for every instance of the word my, he used a word that people used for their closest kin and relations. So every time this man said, my land, he was actually thinking of it with deep love and affection, as a beloved family member. In traditional Hawaiian society, The higher your status, the wider your responsibility extended to care for others. To be under someone socially had the connotation of being under their care. Chiefs were responsible for ensuring the well-being of all the people, which means that those individuals with the most political power had the largest duty of all to make sure that every person in their chiefdom was healthy and happy. And the chiefs were held to their duty of care because tenant farmers possessed a special power. If the farmers were being treated unfairly by their chief, they could up and move to a different district. Claire says in her thesis that it was considered an honorable quest to go in search of a pono chief, a righteous or fair-minded chief. And because common people could vote with their feet, they held the power of chiefs in check. 
Chiefs could not get away with exploiting farmers, or the farmers would grow unhappy and move away. Losing farmers meant a smaller harvest and a big dent in the chief's honor and power, as well as his wealth. So when the success of government is measured by how well it cares for even the lowest class of people, this lends a different flavor to a class system. I think, for contrast, of my ancestors in Central Europe, say, in the early 1500s, where there was also a class system of kings and princes and common tenant farmers. My ancestors lived in Switzerland and Germany, right in the middle of the region where, in 1525, the German Peasants' War broke out. Over the space of a year or two, hundreds of thousands of peasants took up arms against the landowning class of aristocratic families. The peasants were demanding a fairer deal. They wanted access again to forests and common lands for hunting and fishing and grazing so that they could eat more than just the grains and produce they grew in the fields. But recently, the landowning families had enclosed those common areas and were using them for their own private profit to export things like sheep's wool to foreign markets. The peasants also wanted the annual tax on their harvest to be put to public purposes instead of being sucked up into the coffers of the private landholding families. The peasants were being exploited, and they knew it, but there was no system to prevent the landowning class from abusing them. The farmers could not vote with their feet, for where would they go? The system was the same in the next district over and the one beyond that. There was no moral code that demanded landowners treat their tenants fairly, no duty of care to make sure either land or people were happy. So when the conflict between owners and peasants came to blows in the 1520s, the aristocrats pulled together armies of soldiers and, of course, had the means to supply them with much better weapons. The armies of the princes slaughtered over 100,000 of the peasants and farmers or nearly 1% of the rural population of Germany at the time. Think of it, nearly one in a hundred peasants killed in a matter of months. The wealthy class suffered no consequences and in fact increased their power, for from that point on they could squeeze the peasants completely out of the political process. It is one of those points in Western history where we can watch any obligation to care being tossed completely aside. The wealthy class untethered their own well-being from the well-being of the common people. The abuse that came to characterize their class would spur more than one revolution in the centuries to come. So, to build on the idea of good government as one that cares for people at every level of society— I'd like to turn to a fourth indigenous voice, from the Haudenosaunee, or Iroquois people, whose traditional home is New York and southern Canada. Chief Oren Lyons is a faith keeper of the Onondaga people, who are one of the six nations of the Iroquois Confederacy. The six nations are governed by a system called the Great Law of Peace, and Oren Lyons has spent much of his life educating others about the Great Law. He and several co-authors wrote about it in a book called Basic Call to Consciousness, a book I found myself revisiting this week. The Great Law of Peace is especially appropriate for us to talk about here because it helped to inform the writing of the U.S. Constitution, and we'll come back to this in a moment.
The Haudenosaunee, or Iroquois, became a confederacy about a thousand years ago through the teachings of the great peacemaker, a man who arose during a terrible time when people were fighting endless wars and blood feuds over things that people often fight over, territory and boundaries and food. In the great law, peace is not just the absence of war or conflict. It is, as Oren Lyons and his co-authors say, the active striving of humans for universal justice. According to the great law, government exists to keep people equal because, they say, hierarchy creates conflicts. But government can do its work of creating equality only when the people do their part, which is to keep their minds in a good place. So in the great law of peace, it is incumbent on people to keep their minds aligned with the great creator, with the good mind. And here is how Oren Lyons and his co-authors describe the good mind. All thoughts of prejudice, privilege, or superiority must be swept away, and recognition be given to the reality that the creation is intended for the benefit of all equally, even the birds and animals, the trees and the insects, as well as the humans. The world does not belong to humans. It is the rightful property of the great Creator. The gifts and benefits of the world, therefore, belong to all equally. The things which humans need to survive, food, clothing, shelter, protection, these are things to which all are entitled, because they are gifts of the great Creator. Nothing belongs to human beings, not even their labor or their skills, for ambition and ability are also the gifts of the great Creator. Therefore, all people have a right to the things they need to survive, even those who do not or cannot work, and no person or people has a right to deprive others of the fruits of those gifts. This is a profound vision of equality, which is another way of saying it is a profound vision of public care, because to work for equality means to care about the well-being of others. The great law of peace also calls for political leaders to be the servants of the people, another way it structures care into the public fabric of society. We know the Iroquois nations put this into practice because in the 1720s, a colonial lawmaker in New York attended meetings of their confederacy and reported that all of the Iroquois leaders are generally poorer than the common people because they gave away all gifts so as to leave nothing to themselves. According to the great law, the attention of leaders was to rest entirely on the welfare and the will of the people, and if any leader acted from other than these motivations, they could be removed from office. This vision is striking in its contrast with the growing inequality in Europe of the time, with rulers living as if they had no obligation to treat their subjects fairly. It was exactly this kind of abuse that contributed to the American colonists rebelling against the English king. So when the founders sat down to envision how to get these new American states to work together equally, one of their inspirations became the great law of peace. For some of the founders, especially Benjamin Franklin, had been meeting with leaders of the Iroquois Confederacy for 30 years already. 
But the founders failed to adopt the most radical heart of the great law of peace, that vision of complete equality. In the Constitution they wrote, they elevated the rights of property over the idea of equality or care. They did so because they wanted to protect their ability to own other human beings as slaves, and they wrote this brutality into the law of the land which means that today equality remains a goal and an aspiration more than a foundation of our social order. Now a few thoughts in closing. In this time when people become aware of just how much power we have to damage our home, the earth, it is common to ask where Western society went wrong in our relations with nature and with each other. For an answer, we need look no further than how we lost the duty of care. A duty of care was there long ago, at least in some parts of Western history, like the Celtic areas, and it has been handed down in Irish tradition to this day, as we know from the life story of Diana Beresford Kroger. But a duty of care did not survive in mainland Europe, and it did not cross the ocean to become a foundation of American society. Today, there are even Americans who define liberty as the opposite of care, as their ability to refuse any responsibility at all for the well-being of others. We can see this in anti-maskers, who think they are being free when they refuse to wear face masks during a pandemic. Their position has become possible because caring for others is not built into our definition of a good society or into our definition of being human. A different society, a different world is possible, but it will take some radical rethinking of our laws and our customs. It will take learning from indigenous communities and their centuries of experience in caring for each other and the land. It will take changing laws to reward care and equality over profit. It will take redefining leaders as servants of the people, as the Haudenosaunee do, and reviving the old Hawaiian idea of power defined as responsibility for the well-being of people and land. It will mean looking at government as a means for keeping people healthy and happy, rather than a means for keeping people in line. It will take retraining our minds to see the fate of people and land as intertwined as Aboriginal people do, and changing our definitions of humanness to look at how we treat land and water and animals. It will take stitching together the well-being of the privileged with that of the less privileged, so that we stop fooling ourselves by thinking our fates are separate. It will mean reviving the words love and care in public life, and the word responsibility. The Hawaiian language has a beautiful word for this, kuleana, responsibility, but it includes the idea of reciprocity. A person's kuleana is that special relationship you have with those you care for. It shows the back-and-forth flow of responsiveness, how you respond to others, and how others are responsive to you. So our responsibilities actually light our way forward in life. Being responsible is how we grow our connections to others, how we find our own purpose in life, our belonging, and our joy. 
So the good news, as shared by these four indigenous traditions, is that a duty of care is not a burden. It is where we find out what it means to be human. And what we need at this fragile moment in the life of the world is to bring this duty of care back into public life so that our very definition of humanness again includes the practice of love and care. It's a big job, of course, but it is possible, for each of us can start right where we are. We can ask ourselves questions like, what is my part in this creative work of care? How can I care for my local water? What does the soil in my area need to be healthier, or the fish, or the forests? What would promote equality among people here? How can we change the laws to grow happiness? There are millions of ways to answer each question, which means there is something here for each of us to do. May each of us find our own kuleana, our own best ways of responding. You've been listening to Nature Spirit, a podcast with Priscilla Stuckey. For a transcript of this episode, or if you'd like to read further on the topic, go to my website, priscillastuckey.com, and click on the Nature Spirit link. Or check out my books, Kissed by a Fox and Other Stories of Friendship in Nature, and Tamed by a Bear, Coming Home to Nature Spirit Self, both published by CounterPoint Press. Until next time. Be well and be blessed.